0: Craft Beer Radio presents Ancient Ales in a Modern World at Saver 2009 with Sam Calagioni from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery. Sam Calagioni from Dogfish Head gives an outspoken presentation where he eviscerates the Renn High and presents several ales based on beers concocted long before the Bavarian purity law ever came into existence. You can find the rest of the Saver Salons at craftbeerradiocom slash Craft Beer Radio is a free podcast available from our website or on iTunes. So please, you gotta let it all hang out here. You got Sam. I mean, come on, this is this is absolutely great. This is um, the pre-saver salon. My name is Julia hers I am the craft beer program director at the Brewers Association, where the folks that put this on. We put it on with partners like Reyes Beverage Group and amazing partners like Dogfish Head, who help be supporters of this event. And the Brewers Association is an association out of Boulder, Colorado. We represent small and independent breweries. What that means is breweries that produce less than 2 million barrels a year, and they're independently owned. And believe it or not, in the United States today, of the 1,545 breweries, 97% – I'll stand up here because I'm about three feet tall – 97% of the breweries are small and independent. So that's a really big deal of supporting your local brewery and giving these guys all your love and um, and, and continuing to uh, support their brands. So – not much to say, because I know you all bought tickets because you already know who this great guy is. Sam, I mean, to, to me, one of the rock stars of the brewing industry, and I hope that doesn't embarrass him too much to hear that term. Um, anybody see the movie Beer Wars? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, interesting movie. Sam was a huge part of that movie. Um, his books, which actually he has a great giveaway surprise I'll let him share about, um, publisher of many brewing books, um, Beer versus Wine Dinners, which, you know, this is a kind of a revolution happening, one Beverage, one craft beer at a time. And beer and food is the tipping point that I personally feel is where people are really starting to get it. And Sam has been a part of really turning on many people's eyes to that. So I am pleased as punch to introduce Sam Calgioni. Sam?
1: Thank you, Julia. Um, <clears throat> that's a pretty interesting uh, statistic that not, it's 97% of the brewers fit into our, our definition of, of a craft brewer. And that's over 1,400 breweries, and yet roughly 90 percent of the beer sold in America is not made by an American company, uh, which is not—is it 95 when you throw in Heineken and Corona? But you know, Coors and Miller, Bud now are all majority foreign-owned, which means our biggest breweries in our country that own the, their own brewing equipment and make beer and are incorporated here are both Yingling and Sam Adams, uh, both with about 1% market share. That They're the biggest domestic brewers. So it's a pretty weird scene or weird landscape out there. Uh, and what I, I'm really excited about is that we're one of the few sort of uh, – Premium or upscale or gourmet categories, craft beer right now that's thriving in this uh, recession. Uh, you look at Starbucks, cl- you know, uh, closing stores, and uh, you know McDonald's coming after them for, for pricing and beating them up from from the bottom up. Uh, you look at even companies like Whole Foods who are having to pull back and stop uh, store openings as a result of the tightening on people's wallets. A lot of our distributors uh, around this country uh, sell not just beer, but have wine and spirits in their portfolios as well, and as I talk to them, their high-end wines and high-end spirits are, are really losing traction, losing market share, but the craft Portfolios in their in their houses are up, and it sounds crazy, you know. But I think part of the reason that anomaly uh, exists is because everybody's starting to recognize what an amazing affordable. Uh, luxury craft beer is. When you're a wine lover and you can go into a store with $20, if you say, you know, give me $20 worth of world-class beer, you can get at least two six-pack. That wine lover with that $20 goes and give, say, give me a bottle of world-class wine, he's going to get laughed out of that store. Um, so events like this selling out, even in this difficult economic climate gives brewers like myself and those who will be out on that floor a lot of hope because it's events like this and opportunities to meet you guys who are sort of the, the, the beer experts of your peer groups and, and and turn you on to what we're doing what's new what, what pairings we like that's what gets the word out for us we don't really have marketing budgets you don't you haven't seen any dogfish tv ads uh on blimp flying over any sporting events these are the kind of things that we like to spend our our energy our resources doing because it's just a, a way more uh organic and grassroots way of getting a more real way of getting the word out there so on behalf of all the brewers i thank you guys for uh taking the time to do this uh, all right, so my talk i don 't know how long i 'm supposed to talk for i don 't have any like uh stuff prepared or or powerpoints or anything, but we got beer and i'll point i 'll point to that <laughs> and we got really good cheeses uh, so basically, what I wanted to talk about is uh, Ancient ales uh, up to the modern time, and I really want to do that because we, you know, our tiny brewery. As I said, we don't have a PR agency, we don't have a big ad ad firm. We do our own, you know, design our own labels in 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 house, kind of do everything ourselves. But we have sort of gotten a disproportionate amount of uh, attention uh, in in the media uh, um, compared to our size, and I think it's mostly because we're not afraid to take risks on uh, doing new beers that really have no stylistic reference points. And I think that sort of has captured the imaginations of, of uh, a lot of uh, people that are, are, are foodies, culinary people, wine people, beer people, um, and has, has kind of given us a higher profile. But, you know, there is some backlash to that where people say, oh, that's extreme beer, that's goofy beer, uh, you know, they're just doing that to stick out, you know, and, and it has no merits. And so what I wanted to do was use this opportunity to kind of discuss that in a broader context, because uh, when when most beer there's there 's beer geeks and there's beer snobs and i 'm a card Caring dyed-in-the-wool member of the beer geek community. And how I sort of differentiate between the worlds of a beer geek and a beer snob is they could have the equal amount of knowledge about beer. They could have equally awesome palates and can articulate uh, everything about the qualities of beer, tell you the history of brewing styles. Their knowledge uh, might be the same. But a beer geek loves beer because he loves beer, she loves beer, and she wants to sh- learn more. Always try new beers, share that with the people they love. Whereas beer snobs try to know as much as they can about beer to, to, as a PowerPoint and to lord it over people, or to you know stick out as, as an expert in a field of of uh, you know uh, neophytes. Um, and and I feel sometimes I feel that the, the, those beer snobs that are telling people what they should be drinking are doing more damage to, to the craft beer movement uh, than even our bigger competitors that are owned by overseas breweries. Um, because at the end of the day, all of our palates are different. Everybody tastes things differently. Um, that's why there isn't one beer. Um, That almost happened to us in the 60s and 70s with all the consolidation. Uh, And thankfully, you guys and the brewers in that room got out there and spread the word. And all that diversity and color uh, uh, of, of beer is back in availability around this country. Um, So, you know, when when somebody tells someone else what they should and shouldn't be drinking, all they should really be telling them is, I don't like that beer. I don't care for that beer. Not, that's a bad beer, or that beer doesn't deserve to exist. And to take that further into, well, I wouldn't support a beer like that because that's not traditional, I want to kind of start... You can drink while we're we're talking. Save a little of them for for your cheeses. Um, But I want to talk about this idea of traditional. Because when a beer snob or a beer expert references that and says, oh, well, they're not a traditional brewery, whether it's Dogfish or Rogue or Stone for doing giant IPAs uh, or Allagash for doing something with bugs and woods. Oh, that's not traditional. Um, you know, the, the, the tradition that 99 times out of 100 that these people are referencing is the Reinheitsgebot, which I know a lot of you people in this room are familiar with that term. It's the uh, German Beer Purity Act of 1516. And uh, you know what what I, to talk about that for a minute first of all i want to just start going on the record by saying i i I strongly believe that the Rheinheitsgebot is nothing more than a relatively modern form of art censorship. So we'll start there, <laughs> and then and and then digress. Uh, basically, that 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 law came into being because the politicians in Bavaria uh, were trying to protect the the bakers uh, and their ingredients, and so basically that law just mandated made it made it a crime to brew beer with anything other than water, hops, and barley. Uh, yeast wasn't even included in that original document because that document was written in the 1500s, and Louis Pasteur uh, discovered that you know, it was microbiological stuff that was f- responsible for fermentation two centuries later. So in in the era of the rhein uh, you know, ye- fermentation was still sort of a m- miracle. Uh, but you could only make beer with water... Uh, hops and barley. And 99% of the beers sold around the world today still adhere loosely to this quote-unquote tradition. Now, the American big breweries uh, worked hard to make sure that uh, rice and corn were also considered traditional brewing ingredients uh, and successfully lobbied our federal government to acknowledge them as traditional uh, brewing ingredients. They would say their beers brewed traditionally. The Bavarians would probably disagree. Um, But what that led to, this militant uh, approach to brewing, was sort of a choking off of a lot of creativity, because so much of our beer culture came from uh, Germany here, a city right up the road, uh, Philadelphia, where the, the uh, first American lagers were, were brewed, uh, and a lot of stuff came out from that. That was like the earliest brewing city, New Amsterdam, uh, New York, a little further up the road, a little bit more into ales, because there were more English and, and uh, Scandinavian uh, settlers. Um, So, you know, what's ironic is I'll rail against the Reinheitsgebot all day long, but my brewery, while it makes 28 styles of beer, 23, I think, of them that we bottle don't adhere to the Reinheitsgebot, but... uh, the majority of the beer we sell does. 60-minute IPA accounts for 40% of our sales. 90-minute, the one you're having right now, is roughly 20. And 120-minute, uh, and, uh, all three of those collectively. So, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly here to say you can make amazing, complex... Uh, infinitely exciting beers with just those four ingredients but again, I wouldn't want to be a snob and say you can only do great beers with those ingredients so for a a stylistic reference point on this first beer I want to talk about that idea of tradition because here's a beer that 90 minute IPA would be considered an extreme beer by most beer drinkers. Because remember that 99% of the drinkers out there are drinking some very slight variation of the exact same light lager. So Sierra Nevada Pale Ale 20 years ago was an extreme beer. But because they did a great job of getting that to market and introducing people, it's now seen as a session beer. I look forward to the day, maybe 5, 10, or 15 years from now, when a beer like 90 Minute IPA is considered a session beer. Uh, You know, collectively, we're going to have to work on our alcohol tolerances uh, to to make that happen. But I I mean, it is happening. Who would have thought that uh, uh, 6% alcohol, 60 IBU, beer, uh, we would be making, you know, thousands of cases of it a, a day uh, in our Milton brewery. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, the, 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 the center point is always moving. And what's really nice is it's moving in our direction, not just Dogfish Head's direction, but the direction of all the brewers that are out in this room today. And, um, you know, when you think of basically terra firma, the, a giant... Uh, the giant continent of beer is light lager and then there's this little bridge off to this island of Freak Dome, uh, where there's flavor-centric beers. And that's why, while I I can't stand it that that, uh, Coors will spend a bunch of money uh, marketing uh, Blue Moon as a craft beer and kind of hide their identity uh, of their association with it, I'm glad that beer exists, because it does give people the confidence, Coors drinkers or mainstream beer drinkers, to take that first baby step outside that light lager comfort zone and onto that bridge. And once they've taken that first step, hopefully they then go to Allagash White or White Rascal from Avery uh, or to 60-Minute IPA. But rarely does anybody make steps on that bridge and then turn around. Once they're on that bridge, they just keep going further and further, you know, to the jut of that end peninsula where Utopias and Worldwide Stout and a bunch of other freaky stuff is hanging way on that uh, farther farther side. So, you know, I've got a lot of confidence that as long as we can keep – in, in, introducing our friends and other people that might love, be- love food or love wine to craft beer, once we can get them to try it, they're going to love it. And as Julia alluded to, the best uh, portal towards that transition is food. Because... You know, for whatever reason, wine has done a much better job of convincing the world that they are the go-to beverage for pairing with food. I think a lot of the reason for that is, you know, while Coors, Bud, and Miller make great, light, refreshing beers, they know that they're not particularly food-friendly beers. So they've spent their billions of dollars uh, convincing you to drink it because it's cool and you'll get hot, mud-wrestling chicks if you drink it. Uh, Whereas wine spent resources and energy you're basically telling people about how well it worked with food. Well, now this is craft beer's chance to, do, to, to tell the right message, which is beer has all the complexity, all the diversity, and all the fruit, food friendliness of, of wine. So with that, uh, let's have our first uh, bite here. Uh, the, we're going to start off with the 90-minute the, uh, that you're having. Uh, and the first cheese that we're going to be having is, uh, Widmer 4 Age Cheddar, ironically named, uh, Widmer, different spelling, uh, than the Widmer, uh, brewery, uh, and it's a, uh, Uh, handmade uh, cheese cheddar with a creamy body and exceptional flavor. Uh, Basically, sharp cheeses like this work really well with hoppy beers. And cheese in general is always going to be a better partner uh, for beer than wine because cheese is so fatty and so rich that it coats your palate, coats your tongue. Wine without carbonation, it just kind of bounces off of your tongue, whereas the, the, the bubbles in your beer really exfoliate your tongue pulls the cheese off, and gets you ready to actually taste more the next time you put it in your mouth. It should be the
0: one, the first beer served to you on your left is the 90 minute, and then he's going to present beers from there toward going right.
1: I didn't know I was going to do that, but I do now. Awesome. Um, So, and so here's a traditional style that came about after the Reinheitsgebot. Basically, it was in the 17th century that, uh, Brewers and malsters learned about uh, better temperature controlling the malting process. Back in the day, all all beers were, were darker, uh, but pale malt really came into uh, the limelight in the 17th century. So the pale ale style uh, really developed strongly in England. And as many people know the story, the IPA is really uh, is a um, is a, a child of the trial and error. Uh, of shipping this beer, or, or pale ale originally, uh, from the UK, from the Britain Empire to their, their soldiers in India. And they just, again, they didn't have, uh, uh, Louis Pasteur to teach them on a micro level what was going on, but they kind of learned that the hoppier and stronger they made that beer, the more likely it was to land in India in a drinkable condition. Uh, not really knowing it, but both both hops and alcohol uh, are preservatives. Um, so ninety minute is a beer that would be much stronger uh, than a traditional IPA. Uh, back then, um, an English mild uh, or, or you know a bitter uh, would be three or four percent alcohol. a Pale ale would be five. And an IPA would be five and a half six maybe maybe seven, so nine would be blasphemy uh, uh, in, in that in that era um, so that is uh, the first beer, and I wanted to start by kind of before we get our, our freak on acknowledging that you can have a, a ton of uh, uh, I love beers that are brewed with just the ingredients that happen to be the ones in the rhin but i don 't love the uh, I, I I, you know the idea of of experimentation is hopefully in this room what we're going to prove is really what the tradition of brewing is Um, so we'll go on to the next beer how am I doing time wise if we have four beers have I talked for one fourth of the time (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm Okay, I'm all right because I want to leave time for, for questions too. So make sure give me some crazy sign if I'm screwed. if I'm yeah something like that. Uh, um, so all right, so on to more weirdness. Uh, the 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 second beer that we're going to do uh, is uh, Midas Touch. So kind of flashback to we opened in '95 and it was our you know off center ales from for off center people was our motto from the day we opened. I purposely opened our brewery in a restaurant because I knew if I was going to brew beers that averaged 9% alcohol and were made with six ingredients, that the best stage for them would be a table with good food. Uh, so we were always a wine-esque brewery in that we brewed our beers specifically to pair with, with certain foods. Raison d'Etre, our beer brewed with beet sugars and raisins, we designed backwards from what would be the ideal partner for a steak. Um, so we started in that little brewery, and thankfully our brewery was so small that I could walk into the kitchen in my pub and take some raisins, some uh, apricots, some coffee, some licorice roots, some vanilla beans, and tweak these recipes in these little batches without risking losing a normal-sized batch that a, big, a real brew pub would have. Our, our brewery was built out of kegs, so we only made 10 gallons at a time uh, the first year we were open. Um, but it gave us this awesome opportunity to experiment. And because we're located pretty much equidistant from D.C., Baltimore, and Philly, um, we can go to events in every city and say we're the local beer. <laughs> uh, but it meant, it meant that uh, we had access to these great uh, schools and uh, great beer scenes. All three cities have great beer scenes. And we did an event at the University of uh, Pennsylvania and... Uh, uh, Michael Jackson, may rest in peace, probably the guy who's done more for educating uh, consumers and future brewers around the world, the possibilities that are out there with beer than anyone, uh, was hosting an event at the University of Pennsylvania and he was taking around their local, uh, the University of Pennsylvania's in-house molecular archaeologist, and they came over to my booth, and I had a, a oat, which is a, a, a hybrid of, a, of a, a mead and a beer, and I had fermented it with plums as well, in a firkin cask at my booth, and they both came over together and tried it, and, and he, uh, he happened to love it, and, and then they went around the other, other brewers and tried other things, and basically Dr. McGovern, this guy was telling Michael that he'd found this really interesting information. He wanted to uh, bring recreate what he found. And Michael was kind enough to bring him over and say, hey, you know, these freaks in Delaware are making beer with pumpkins and coffee and licorice. You've got to come talk with them. So long story short, it made, started a, a beautiful romance uh, between Dr. McGovern and Dogfish Head. Um, and we've done a number of beers together that are uh, – pretty unique in that they're truly based on uh, organic compounds. Uh, you know, th- Another great uh, sort of milestone in recognizing the longer tradition of brewing uh, was uh, Ninkasi, also just known as Sumerian beer, uh, that was made by Anchor Steam uh, in the late 80s. Another professor at University of Pennsylvania wrote a, a long, uh, well-regarded paper Uh, basically arguing that beer is responsible for civilization as we know it. Uh, (laughs) Basically, he just traced uh, the time from when human beings shifted from Hunting and gathering nomads into settling into villages with the arrow when they were settling to raise uh, crops and he you know it 's still acknowledged as a as a strong uh, possibility that, that that was for beer not for bread um, so uh, fritz maytag uh, patriarch of our 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 movement uh, reached out for him and they, they did a beer called Ninkasi based off of uh, the, the hymn to Ninkasi, which was a, a poem, uh, a 3,000-year-old, uh, it might be 5,000-year-old uh, Sumerian uh, poem. And that beer was brewed with dates and honey, uh, the Ninkasi beer, as per the evidence uh, in, the, in the poem. So let's review that again and see how that fits in with the Rhine Heights Uh Water yeast uh, water check barley check hops check uh, doesn't reference dates uh, no it doesn't and uh, doesn't reference honey um, but again that happened long long before the Rhine Heights So on back to Dr. McGovern's work uh, at University of Pennsylvania the first one that we worked on together was this beer Midas Touch and this was a really important beer for our company and I think it's just a a, a, a wonderfully uh, um, message-full, you know, message if that's a word, uh, beer uh, f- because it is a, a hybrid between so much. It's got the honey of a mead, it's got white muscat grapes as, as a wine, and it's got the barley. And since this is a 2,700-year-old recipe, it predates the uh, domestic growth of hops, uh, so they believe that the region it was in, the bittering uh, substance they would have used was, was saffron, which gives it a little bit of its reddish hue. So to, let me breathe for a second here. Let's take a bite of uh, of uh, this cheese, uh, which is uh, the Nordic uh, Creamery uh, Caprica, which is the middle paler of the yellow cheeses. Give me a second here. Cheese is from Wisconsin. Nice. They work really well together. So this is obviously a bit sweeter beer than ninety minute. Um, they're they're per- purposely I, I chose these two as to be the same ABV, roughly the same color, a little bit more reddish hue uh, to the Midas than the ninety. But but even though they have very similar ABVs and very similar colors, think you know, try them side by side. They couldn't be more different uh, beers. Um, so the the Midas. Uh, Discovery was was where we started our, our journey uh, with Dr. Pat on these official ancient beers. But before this, at our pub in Rehoboth, we, we now have our our production brewery in Milton, uh, Delaware, two hours from here. And you know, flash forward when we were in '95, we opened. We were the smallest brewery in the country, but making six six ingredient, nine percent uh, alcohol average beers. Today we're the biggest craft brewery in the mid-Atlantic, but still our average beer is 9%, six ingredients. So again, the the, the Interest has shifted over towards what breweries like Dogfish are doing. Breweries like Rogue and Dogfish and Stone and uh, Avery and Allagash, we haven't had to shift towards light lager. If anything, the drinkers come towards us a little bit, which is really encouraging, even though we're still roughly 4% of of the beer industry, and that's including Sam Adams and Sierra and some of the bigger guys. Um, So... uh, uh, back to Midas. What was I saying on that? Let me see. I'm already. I'm only two beers into it, and I've lost my train of thought. Uh, uh, what did I want to get at with this one? Um, uh, let me see. I don't really know. I guess I can go on. Um, but but again, the, this idea of tradition. So this is uh, 500 year old uh, law that everybody's referencing as traditional breweries. We see Ninkasi brewed by Anchor, dates and honey, well before the Rhine Heights Now you're drinking Midas Touch, 2,700 year old recipe, honey, grapes, saffron, uh, and we'll see this in the in the next two beers that we do, all from totally different parts of the world. So you know. Ironically, while we get beat up sometimes for being, uh, oh, you know, that's not traditional beer, Dogfish Head may be the most traditional brewery in the world in that we're, we're basically taking a lot of reference points from around the world where the tradition was always brew with what's indigenous, celebrate your local culture, uh, this idea of think globally, act locally. You know, back then it was think locally, act locally. There was no glo- globally. There was your tribe and the stuff that grew around your tribe and that's what you made. And so when you make things that grow around where you are, they reflect you and it makes the, it makes the whole, uh, spectrum of what's available out there that much more, uh, intricate, exciting, and colorful. Um, so here you have, uh, Midas Touch, uh, in Turkey, very far away from, uh, uh, you know where where the the double IPA the UK where the IPA style uh, started, and uh, from there we're going to go much further away. We're going to go to China. So the third beer that you're having, let me find this one. Yep, um, is Chateau Jiahu and uh, this is another one that we worked on with uh, Dr. McGovern, um, where this one's really significant because even with the findings of Midas touch, the oldest known, uh, references for wine were older than Midas touch. They were like four or 5,000 years old. Same for beer, the Sumerian era, uh, four or 5,000 years old. When they made this discovery in China, it was a 9,000 year old tomb in China. Um, so think about how, uh, amazing this is. 9,000 years ago, again, is really the birth of civilization. Uh, this tomb was significant for not only holding the, the, the oldest known liquid beer that was so well preserved, this tomb, that it was still liquid in some of these uh, clay cauldrons, but it was also, they found in this tomb, uh, uh, flutes that had been whittled out of bones, um, and those are the oldest known uh, instruments, musical instruments, ever discovered. So this is like the the you know original gangster Hootenanny went down in this room. They were partying. They were drinking. They were playing music, dancing. All and we found all of this under one roof. Uh, and and uh, so you know we were really proud to be a part of this because it moved the the known date of fermented beverages back almost two thousand years from what science previously thought with this discovery and. It was fermented from grain, not from grapes, what they found, which means there's now evidence that beer is older than wine. Um, So what was that evidence that they found? Uh, They could analyze both the liquid and the residue on the crockery in that uh, tomb, and it had uh, rice, sake yeast, sake rice, Uh, It had uh, grapes in it again, honey in it again, uh, and this one also had hawthorn fruit. And hawthorn fruit uh, is, I say it's kind of closest probably to a pomegranate in that it's uh, a little bit... um, uh, has some tartness to it. It's not all sweet. Uh, so we got all these ingredients together uh, to make uh, Chateau Giahou. Uh, and you're going to try this one uh, with the, the stinkiest of the cheeses, the big blue cheese. Let's take a second and try these together. And just as a reference point, uh, sort of a, a really uh, back-of-the-envelope um, Good cheat sheet on beer and wine, uh, beer beer and food pairing um, is uh, in general uh, white wines are, are going to be uh, more like lagers. Uh, they both ferment at cooler temperatures, uh, so they tend to be more mellow and refined. And red wines are, are and ales are going to be more similar. They ferment at warmer temperatures and have more robust, uh, bigger, fruitier uh, flavors. So they tend to pair with food similarly. So, you know, people say red wine with, with, with uh, meats and chicken and fish with white wines. That's generally true for, for beers as well. Um, our brewery does almost uh, exclusively ales. Uh, every beer that you're having here right now is a, a top-fermented beer, which means it's an ale. Uh, Chateau Gia is no different, although we do use a sake yeast uh, in addition to an ale yeast uh, for, uh, to make this uh, you know, as legit to, to the findings uh, as we can. Um, so we've done a, a series. We, we, we you know, do these both beer versus wine dinners and we also do ancient ale dinners uh, where we'll do four different courses with four different beers uh, paired with four different uh, foods that are from the countries uh, that, that are uh, represented by that beer. Which is a lot of fun for chefs at home because you're not just cooking the same stuff. Uh, you can cook from all around the world in four different courses at, at one meal. Uh, can be a lot of fun. Outside of these three beers, and we're going to be doing another one with Dr. McGovern uh, probably in the fall, but outside of these, we've been experimenting with uh, beers that predate the uh, Ryan heitz uh, f- since we opened in '95. Early on, we did a Tej, which is an African honey beer uh, where they use gesho root, which is a bitter tree root uh, to counterbalance the sweetness of the honey, again, because hops w- wasn't domesticated uh, when that was made. And then uh, in three weeks, we'll be releasing in 750 ml champagne bottles a beer called Sati, S A H T E A. Uh, The traditional spelling is S-A-H-T-I, and that's a Finnish style from the 9th century, again predating the Rheinheitsgebot, Uh, and that beer in that era was made mostly in people's home, as the Tej was. There wasn't really commercial breweries. You know, if there was a flag outside a home, it meant they had Tej or if if they were in Africa, or sati, if they are in Finland, to sell. And usually the the, the mother, the woman of the household, uh, was also the brewer uh, and uh, would be selling the stuff out, out the back of the house. But sati is really cool because they use their local juniper bows, uh, as a filter bed uh, to to let the wort run through it keeps the, the the barley chunks behind and lets the wort run through that filter bed and it picks up a lot of those juniper notes. It's also uses rye instead of exclusively barley in there, um, and it's it was fermented though with a, a baker's yeast like the stuff you'd buy you know at, at a supermarket. So we did tests and we really didn't. The baker's yeast made for a very chalky beer, so we shifted that one a little bit and we, we found it, it made it chalky, but it had a lot. Of hefe characters to it, phenolic. Clovy notes to it, so we ended up just substituting that yeast for a uh, for a hefe yeast. But to sort of emphasize the spiciness, we also at the end of the boil add a black tea mixture that we custom blended in India that has ramp leaves in it, uh, cardamom, coriander, uh, black tea uh, as well. Um, and the and and these breweries in these homes, it kind of predated the era when people were making big. Uh, Uh, cauldrons out of metal. So the boil kettles were wooden in in Finland in the ninth century. So, of course, if you put a wooden boil kettle over an open fire, that's not going to work. So how sati was made is they would outside their house ju- light a giant, they'd build a big campfire. And they would roll these giant rocks into the campfire and let them sit in that fire for hours and hours and hours. They'd get the beer ready in the other room, let it run through the filter bed of juniper berries into this wooden tank. And then with holding uh, mats or clothing or some material, they would, uh, or, or, or pictures with shovels and pitchforks, move these White hot rocks from that outdoor fire, and plop them into the wooden tank, and the heat of the rock is what would boil the beer. So we did that the sort of traditional way. We we took our our old. Uh, Tank our old, our old wood grill at our pub, all of our food is cooked over at Hickory and Oak Logs. When we outgrew one of our stoves, we brought it out to our commercial brewery. And now on Sati Brew Day, we've ruined this giant tank that's used for nothing except you know, dropping these giant steaming hot rocks in. But it, you can't replicate that flavor by faking it. You can't use liquid smoke <laughs> to, 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 make, to, to get that flavor back. Um, so on three different brews, we, we heated these rocks and it gives it a caramelized, because the sugars of the of the barley caramelize on the surface of that rock. And the, the earthiness of that wood smoke that, that, uh, that heated the rock uh, permeates the wort as well. Um, so that's another historical beer that, again, well predates the, the Ryan Hudskabot, but is one that we had, didn't do with Dr. McGovern. We just did that one uh, from our own research. Um, So, and we will continue to do our own research and, and, and brews, uh, our buddy Pete, Pete Salzberg from Pete's Wicked Ale, another pioneer in our industry, uh, emailed me about four or five months ago, and was at an an Indian market out in, I think, San Francisco. And he's like, I'm smelling all these crazy things, and I'm thinking of you, Sam. So (laughs) I guess that's a compliment. So so long story short, he sent us a package with ten really exotic fenugreek and all these crazy uh, Indian spices, and we... Sifted through them and found six that we thought would really complement a beer de garde, a uh, nice spicy Belgian-y French-style uh, uh, beer. Um, and so we just brewed that, and it's called uh, Pale India Ale, and that's available at our pub in Rehoboth. And that's still kind of our 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 process is... We'll come up with an idea, or a friend of ours, or an archaeologist, um, and then we do. A, I usually myself and Brian Selders, our lead brewer, do a five barrel batch at our pub in Rehoboth, um, and then if it it meets success at events like this, or I served the Pale India at our event at RFD last night, and since our community is so uh, you know so so um, loud and vibrant and so present online and at festivals, it means that we get this built in feedback group, you know, and uh, I can sort of just kind of gauge off of the excitement both of our regulars in our pubs and at events if that new beer is something that we want to take that recipe and extrapolate it up to the 100-barrel brew house. Um, and Sati is one that, that happened that way. We, we did that beer a year ago. We loved it, five-barrel batch. Now this summer will be available in, in uh, 750-mil bottles around, around the country. Um, so all right, so uh, we're going to go on to our fourth beer. Uh, which is Theobroma, Um, this one uh, is a uh, really fun beer, about 3,000 year old recipe, long before people were eating chocolate, chocolate was being drunk, Uh, it was a beverage before it was something people ate, that saying "drunk as a monkey" actually comes from monkeys cracking open cocoa beans during rainy seasons, and the the the, the pods would naturally ferment, and they'd be falling out of the trees, enjoying themselves. Uh, so so. Again, Dr. McGovern went down uh, to Central America, did some research, uh, found these cauldrons in, in, in a 3,000-year-old tomb uh, that had molecular, it had the evidence uh, residue that he brought back and anal- analyzed on a molecular level. Uh, and this beverage that was found 3,000 years ago um, had uh, honey in it. That's been a real constant. Uh, uh, cocoa nibs, cocoa powder, uh, ancho chilies. And netto, which is a tree seed that's sometimes used to give flavor and color to rices in uh, Spanish and Mexican uh, cooking. Um, and so this one, right out of the gates, we're like, yep, sign us up. This is going to be fun. Because we played around with cocoa and, and coffee and, and licorice and chicory. Uh, and uh, we really thought cocoa could could be uh, a great, uh, uh, sort of a, a great background instrument in in a a symphony of a beer. In other words, we'd see it used with a heavy hand where it's more the chocolate beers, uh, but cocoa is more of an earthy, dirty in a good way, uh, uh, can can contribute those kinds of flavors and aroma to a beer. So we're not adding this cocoa for, for sugar to sweeten the beer or even for fermentable sugar to make the beer stronger. We bump this beer up with honey Uh, to get it more ABV. But the cocoa, we purposely add post-fermentation. There's some uh, that goes into the mash tun, but the majority of it goes in after the beer is done fermenting so that the aromas are are kept in that beer because during fermentation, the process of fermentation, uh, the CO2... Uh, that's created is pushed out of the the beer and escapes into the atmosphere, well, a lot of those great aromas uh, can escape with it. So that's why dry hopping in IPAs happens post-fermentation, and that's why dry cocoaing, or whatever you call it, what we did here, uh, happens uh, post-fermentation. This is another... Uh, story uh, of of just how great our industry is. I met this guy Sean Askinosie, uh years ago. He'd read he'd read my book and he'd decided he wanted to stop being a lawyer and wanted to open his own chocolate company. And he had a bunch of questions for me and email. And I try to answer those when they come through for people that are you know hoping to get in the business on their own for karmic reasons and encouragement and uh, and I really. I could tell he was a great guy and long story short we convinced him to, to be part of GABF and he ended up renting a, a space there and sharing his chocolate with everybody at the Great American Beer Fest and uh, great overlap obviously chocolates and dark beers not just dogfish but all, all kinds of beers that are dark work really really well with chocolate uh, blow away any wine pairing with chocolate um, when i 've done I think 30, 30, 32 of the beer versus wine dinners with my co author Marnie and we 're within one or two, I forget who actually I should know, but one of us is winning by one or two dinners right now, but we looked at dessert course, and beer has won five out of six times, uh, and it 's because I always make sure they do something chocolate at dessert and and nothing no wines pair with with, uh, with, with chocolate as well as dark beers those those dark grains, black patent. For you homebrewers, roasted barley uh, are really, really great uh, contrasting elements up against uh, sweet chocolate. Um, so, uh, so, at any rate, Sean Eskenosi, we have an exclusive uh, relationship with him where he is the guy who provides uh, the cocoa for us. And his company, Eskenosi Chocolate, you can Google it, um, is really cool because they. Don't just call up the farm in Peru and say send it. They go down there and visit. They don't buy from uh, you know third party brokers. They buy directly from the farmers. Make sure the money stays with the farmers, um, and they just have a, a, a beautiful uh, business model. And they're and they're gaining the trust of all these great farmers from around the world. So this chocolate is from the Soconusco uh, region, the one that we 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 brewed with, and it's. It's the chocolate that, before we were killing each other over plots of land that had oil underneath them, uh, Aztecs uh, fought wars over what territories had the best cocoa growing grounds. And this is the first time this Soconusco chocolate has been brought into America by a company, and it's thought to be one of the most uh, sought-after cocoa regions uh, in the world. Um, So go ahead, let's try these two together. The chocolate with the Theo. Oh, uh, gosh. Done. All right. Those went well. I want to make sure I'm... Uh, those are the four beers. Obviously, my message is screw the Reinheitsgebot I, I, to, <laughs> to encapsulate everything we've been doing here. It, not, not, not screw traditional styles of beer. I even... Uh, there's no doubt in my mind the light lager beer is going to be the majority market share beer for my lifetime and probably my kid's lifetime. But for the light lager style to have roughly a 97 98 percent share of the market and that's lumping in corona and heineken because they're essentially just light lagers in different colored bottles um That's wrong, and you guys know that. I know you know that. That's why you're at this event. But again, help us small breweries spread the word. If somebody's drinking white beers, you know, turn them on to a. a, Tell them it's a Belgian heritage. You should try doubles or triples. Um, Push people outside their comfort zone, and they'll thank you for it that's what our brewery's been trying to do since we opened uh, 14 years ago. Uh so thank you guys uh for for uh your tolerance of this unorganized but hopefully educational for me uh uh talk and I'd love to get some questions if I have time.
2: I absolutely love the uh, the experimentation, and I was curious. Because we're obviously chasing these successes, but have you had any uh, – w- what are the spectacular failures? Maybe any ingredients that you're like, I thought this is going to be good, and, boy, I'm never going to do this in beer again?
1: Right. That's a great question. It's too bad we only have 15 minutes. I got 15 beers I could tell you about. <laughs> Thankfully, most of them happened in the era when we were brewing 10 gallons at a time. Uh, one of the early ones that we did was uh, high-alpha wheat, and as as homebrewers know you usually try to use low alpha hops when you do wheat beers they're soft subtle subtle facile beers and we did this one with high alpha hops black peppercorns and lavender buds and this is 1996 and we as i said we always use our our pub regulars as the tasting ground and anytime there's a new beer that goes on tap i always at the end of the night pour a pint of it and sit down and read what people wrote and the first Comment card came up back on that and said it tastes like tongue kissing Laura Ashley <laughs> from the lavender buds. I don't know how this person knew what that would taste like, uh, but I understood where they were going. Uh, uh, and then we had early batches. We were we were aging Immortale uh, beer made with maple syrup, vanilla beans, uh, and oak. Uh, we were aging that on wood since '96, our second year in business. And in that era, there weren't many wood-aged beers. And we were had a heavy hand with the wood on a batch. Uh, and the first comment came... It was 11% alcohol, as it is today. And that first comment card that we saved said, It tastes like trees, but it got me fucked up. <laughs> and they're like, Maybe not the image we're going for, but dude has a point. Uh, and then... Uh, so that's two examples. I guess I could stop there, and we could tell you we could you go all night.
2: Yep. Love your beers, man. Thank um, you. Meads. Are you gonna are you gonna make one?
1: We, uh, you know, I, I'm good friends with Dave at Redstone Meadery. You can find his bottles; they're blue, pretty bottles. Uh, he's out of Colorado, making really nice stuff. Um, we have done Braggots, Braggos, however you want to pronounce them. Um, we do Midas, which is 40% of the fermentables are, are from honey. Uh, the one I'm most excited about is we just released uh, something called B, which is B-E, which is in our restaurant, since Delaware is so small, we can kind of write our own laws. And I convinced, I convinced the people in Dover to let me put a distillery in my restaurant. right right over a wood grill distilleries blow up I shouldn't be telling you this come visit our pub (laughs) but uh, uh, we we use our our Brew house, our five-barrel brewhouse, to feed our experimental brews. As I mentioned, we just did India Pale Ale, or, you know, uh, Sati came from that. All of our beers came from that brewhouse, their first batch. But we also use it for the washes of our distillery. So we ferment molasses in there, and we make rum. Um, so this one time, we did make a straight mead in there, but and we fermented it out, and instead of serving it as a mead, we pumped it up to our distillery. We triple-batch distilled that, and then we took... Uh, extra wildflower honey from my wife Mariah's family farm in in, uh, Milton, Delaware, and then we took maple syrup from my family farm in Western Mass and put it into barrels uh, with this distilled mead for two years, Uh, and we just bottled it and got label approval for it last week. So it goes on sale this Friday, I think yesterday. What day is today, Saturday? Yesterday it went on sale called B. and we think it's the first commercially available distilled uh, mead. Uh, that has some maple notes to it as well. So that's kind of a fun one. Better kind of distribution? Uh, you, if you walk into the pub, it's on the, on the right. <laughs> All the way down to the back register. <laughs> yeah, we, we only made, I think, 20-something cases of it. And I think we're limiting people to one or two bottles. But it's pretty unique, and we'll make it again, but it'll take us a while.
0: Mead for licensing is technically a winery license. Breweries can't just up and make a mead. I mean, it's two separate licenses, and that's how the federal government differentiates. Breweries really don't do it because of, some get around it for very specific reasons that they've figured out. But there's a big yeah, reason as, why you're not seeing a breweries, lot
1: of for us to sell a beer, as Julia said, it, ha- it technically has to have 51% of its fermentable sugars come from barley.
0: We've got about ten, seven minutes left.
2: He's a plant. <laughs> uh, Anheuser Bush is sold to Imbev. Ninety-five percent of all beer sold in America is owned by international concerns. Is that a good story to use for the craft side?
1: Um, I mean, I I, th- I think it's it's you're 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 poking a very big giant. But if you don't poke them, they're just going to step on you. So, I mean, I think it is worth pointing that out to people. Um, and uh, I don't I don't. I, I feel like they're more focused on making sure Bud Light Lime is successful right now than they are worried about Lefe, which is also in their portfolio. And I think our beers fall closer to the Lefe part of the world than the Bud Light Lime. So I don't think, and you know better than I would, how much focus they're putting on their quasi-craft beers these days and their imports to take out the real craft players. Uh, But I think it's really important that the consumer knows who makes their beer uh and we're in the process at the brewers association of revamping our website and it'll be a lot of educational stuff on there um but uh you know part part of that will be you know talking about where what what a small independent traditional brewery is
2: and that leads to the next question is uh brewers association definition of a craft brewer and obviously the rest of the brewer world is getting kind of mirrored um What's your opinion about how important it is from the consumer's level to really understand what a BA's definition of craft beer is versus what non-craft beer is? Mm -hmm.
1: And at the Brewers Association, we don't define craft beer. We define a craft brewery because we're an organization that, that represents craft breweries. I don't think the nuances of our definition would be that interesting to the average consumer. The better way to consumer-facing explain why it matters is I would think that people want to support their local communities, so they should go out and figure out what beers are being made in their local community where the money stays in the community that's an independent brewery. If that small craft brewery is actually partially owned by a giant company, that money's not staying in that community. Also, that giant corporation might be using that quasi-craft brewery as a pawn in the chess game to knock beers like Dogfish, like even Sam Adams, off of taps uh, so that they they lose that that placement. So I think it's really important. People want to support local. That's what we are. And we're definitely going to need – the, the the beer, the whole all the uh, enthusiast network from distributors to enth- drinkers to retailers in in the coming months because to pay for this health care program there's an excise tax. Proposed right now that would uh, raise our, 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 our cost of beer. Uh, Dogfish headed the change if it went through it, as, it, as, it was, as it's proposed, would cost our company between $1.2 and $1.5 million a year, which in essence, frankly, is all of our profits. So instead of building tanks and everything, it, we would be in tremendous jeopardy. So, you know, supposedly it's going to go in front of the uh, 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 legislation in August, and it's a big concern. Uh, so that's on that's on the horizon, Julia. Do you see a risk of the big multinationals trying to move in and buy up some of the larger or more, you know, visible craft brewers to kind of take over some of that market? Yeah, I mean that, that that's happened to some extent. Uh, you know, either uh, out and out ownership. That model hasn't happened, but partial equity ownership—Goose uh, Island, Widmere, Red Hook, locally here, uh, Old Dominion Brewery, Star Hill, uh, Kona has a relationship with with AB Network, I believe. Uh, so that's that's out there and it's happening. I know they've approached a bunch, and we did we got a pr- approached a, a number of years ago. Um, It was a very short conversation. Uh, You know, because I think at the end of the day, if you're a public company like that, your number one legal obligation is increasing shareholder value. And if you want to build a $140,000 paraguayan wooden tank that has a return on investment measured in decades not years they're not going to like that you know the decisions are about simplifying shit and making it more efficient i.e more profitable not exploring the creative uh, opportunities in the brewing world so i don't see how that association in the long run helps our industry that's kind of how I feel about it. But it'll probably keep happening. It's slowed down, I think, since all these giant mer- big brewery mergers have happened. They're, key- they're again, caring more about Bud, Bud Light Lime right now uh, than the craft segment, it seems. Other
2: questions? I just wanted to ask you now. I mean, I understand with um, Beer Wars, you didn't really see it until the night it premiered, if that's correct. What, yes. was, your, you know, what was your opinion of the final product?
1: Um, I think ninety uh, percent of it i was obviously I was very flattered that our brewery was was we didn 't know that we 'd be featured that much in it because she spent two years um, doing that, so that was flattering if anything I think I saw the only negative I would say is not a fault to Annette the filmmakers, but it 's actually a great thing, which is it, it's she seemed to be lumping in distributors with big breweries and saying that 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 collectively both those tiers were out to stop or 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 control uh, craft beer, but again, remember she started that two or two over two years ago, and in that era, frankly, the bigger distributors were a little bit more uh, combative and aggressive towards craft breweries. Um, so it's a testament again to the consumer who demanded choice, and uh, um, that that the big. Distributors got religion and said, we've got, to, we've got to believe in craft. It's not a fad. It's, it's a trend. It's going to be here. And that's happened. So I frankly agree with everything in that film about how predatory and aggressive the big breweries are. But the stuff that was in there about the distributors being similar, I felt was a little antiquated. But one one example of how I saw that movie is effective is Mariah, my wife, does all our online stuff. She runs Dogfish.com, our our Twitter, our Facebook, whatever the kids are doing these days, uh, and uh, numerous people either emailed or, or tweeted to say. We, we went into our local liquor store and we moved the Bud Light 30 packs away from the eye view in the cold box and put Dogfish 60 in there. Uh, so I thought that was pretty neat that the consumers uh, revolt because now that they understand why stuff is where it is in, in the liquor stores, it's all about the big companies keeping the little guys out. Yeah.
0: Beer, Beer Wars was a movie that was a live event So if people have heard about it, why can't I see it She will eventually release that on DVD There might be another showing of it But it was an indie film In that they had to secure theaters But it was a satellite feed One night only across the U.S. Over 400 theaters So people have been talking about it But there was only one night you could actually see the film Any other questions? Maybe two more questions we got time for Anyone have t- um, feedback on the beers? Everybody, how many had all had had our four beers? Before. Before, previously. Raise high. Thank you, guys. So maybe half the room. Pretty cool for you to know.
1: No, Thank you. All right, Jim. I remember what's our our takeaway, Julia, from this talk?
0: Yeah, books.
1: Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I meant like not literal. Yeah, you totally get a book. I meant our message. Screw the line in right? I can say it. All right, all right. I said it. She didn't.
2: Okay, Sam. One and last Jim. thing. As a wholesaler, then your statement is that wholesalers aren't bad people. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> so we can take that as a good thing.
1: When do you get? When do you get our our our, our book, our annual book of review? We'll we'll talk about it then. Yeah. We'll talk, no, you guys are, are allies. You are allies. Yeah.
0: Well, I think we should thank Sam. Sam, thank you very, very thank much. Thank you,
1: guys. If, if you. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Julia. Uh, If you did not get a copy of the book, I brought one for each person that attended, and please do get them uh, at the back if you didn't get a copy. And on behalf of all the brewers in that room, thank you for coming to this on a beautiful Saturday. Uh, I know it wasn't cheap, but I know you're going to get your money's worth in that room. So thank you.
0: So everyone should exit to the back of the room. Thank you for listening to Craft Beer Radio. If you have questions or comments, you can email us at beer at craftbeerradio.com. Craft Beer Radio is released under the Creative Commons license. Visit craftbeerradio.com for more information. The opening and closing music is Last Hurrah from the band The Lights Out. You can listen to more of their music at their website, thelightsout.com. Some people get-